This is an AMI podcast. Hi there. Welcome to Connecting Disability on AMI-audio. I'm Megan Gilmore. I'm really glad to be with you today. I hope your summer is going well. We are in the middle of July. Not totally the dog days of summer yet, uh, but I really hope that this conversation is just a refreshing, fun time for you. We're talking to Laura Bridges. Laura is a woman in Ottawa, uh, where I live now, and she's spent a lot of the last uh, number of years of her life educating and helping people with hidden disabilities access the services that they need. Uh, She has a lot of really great things to say about adjusting to life after a traumatic brain injury, what it means to choose happiness, and she also has some practical tips about how to make our summer gatherings best inclusive for our friends with hidden disabilities. I really hope you enjoy this conversation. Hi, Laura. Welcome on the show. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. It's a pleasure to get to talk to you in a more public way like this. We've spoken before, and I always felt a little sad that it was just me who got to hear your story on those calls. So thanks for coming on and and talking to talking to everyone else. I was just wondering if you could start by just like, introducing yourself, tell us a bit about who you are, what you do, that sort of thing. Yeah, I'm Laura Bridges. I'm 63 years old. I live in Ottawa. And back in 2005, I was in a car accident. The accident left me with a traumatic brain injury that has a whole bunch of cognitive side effects, mostly fatigue, but sensory processing and sleep problems. The impact changed the chemistry of my brain. So I also ended up with major depression as a result of that and a pile of physical issues because of the impact. And I guess the biggest problem with that related to that is that I'm in chronic pain. Mm. So being in chronic pain, like, do you need a mobility aid for walking or anything? Or No, no. It's myofascial pain. So I don't limp. I don't need physical support. It just always hurts to move. I do walk sometimes when I'm out alone on trails with a walking stick, but that's got many reasons. It's not because I need the physical support of the stick. So to somebody who isn't you, like somebody who's not living in your body, it it wouldn't look like you have some form of long-term disability. Absolutely. People cannot see and they cannot hear my disability. If we're talking about people who don't know me well and somebody who just interacts with me spontaneously, they would never have a clue. If they got me on a super, super bad day where I hadn't slept, hadn't eaten, they might be able to tell because I wouldn't be able to find words and I'd look like a mess. And I might not make sense when I do talk. But overall, 99% of my interactions, people can't tell. And that's Mm. why I call them hidden disabilities, because they're both silent and invisible. That's really one of the reasons why we brought you on is because of the work that you've done in the past number of years trying to raise awareness about hidden disabilities in Canada and how those impact people. How did that begin for you? How did you get more involved in raising awareness about this? Um, I needed it. I needed people to understand that I had issues. I was injured in 2005. By 2009, I had developed my own hidden disability symbol, 
and I used it. I carried it with me in business card format. And whenever I went anywhere where I was having trouble focusing through noise or the place only had fluorescent lights and my vision would start to flicker or it was just too busy and I couldn't focus, cash register lineups are the worst. I needed something to speak for me when I was least able to speak for myself. So I developed this hidden disability symbol as a self-advocacy tool. And then from there, I thought, oh, this is going to help a lot of other people. It's more than just the brain injury for me. It's multiple disabilities. So I posted it on Facebook. I created a Facebook page. Every year I got more and more and more enthusiastic followers. And I thought, yep, we need this. So then I thought, we need a national one because other organizations, other countries, some businesses were starting to create all their own symbols. And none of them were the same. And I thought, we need something that's standardized. We need something that's thoughtfully designed that can represent the hidden disability community and something that visually can explain to people that this is a disability you can't see or hear. What did the symbol look like? What did you finally land on as what I What I landed on was a blue and white symbol because symbols have to be two colors. And I chose blue because there's an association with medical and with the international symbol of access or the wheelchair symbol. What it is, it's a figure that is kind of similar to the washrooms symbols. It's of a body that's divided in half vertically. When you're looking at it on the right-hand side, it's blue, and on the left-hand side, it's white. And the blue is to represent what you can see in here, and the white is to represent what you're not seeing and what you're not hearing. It's surrounded in a circle, and I use that as a way to symbolize that we're complete people. Just because we're disabled doesn't mean we're not all. You mentioned how, like, at the beginning, it was just for yourself, and like, you bring this when you're out shopping or whatever. Like, how did people react to seeing your symbol? I would say 90% it was positive. Some people needed me to describe it, like, to explain it. Most people mm-hmm. did not. I shared it as a business card size. So it would say hidden disability above the symbol. And then I designed it to have room at the bottom so people could put whatever they wanted. I put brain injury under it. And on the back of the card, I said, my name is Laura. Busy and noisy places make it hard for me to think clearly. If I need help, please, you know, make eye contact, speak slowly and clearly and take me to a quiet place. And that seemed to be enough to make people just go, oh, okay, I need to deal with you a little bit differently. What was it like when you started getting responses from others about their need for the symbol or like how how they were using it? For me, it was really exciting. I am sitting here doing this when I can because I have to spend a lot of every day just being and not doing. So I'm working away at this whenever I can. Facebook was at the time the perfect social media for me to use. It was very rewarding, I guess, in the sense to know that I'm I'm helping people who are mm. in situation the way I am. It felt good because I'm sitting here doing this from my living room and there isn't that interaction to get that immediate feedback. The reaction I got on Facebook was really positive. 
And then what really made it rewarding was that the communication manager from Brain Injury Society of Toronto reached out because I had gotten some um, press in the Toronto Star about the symbol. And the minute she became aware of it, she knew that their catchment population could really benefit from something like this. So with her support and with the support of Brain Injury Canada, we were able to make like a mini movement asking the government for a national hidden disability symbol. And as part of that movement, we are reaching out and asking for allies, and we've had good response. So you asked the government of Canada to create a national disability symbol, and I think that would have been... What year was that petition? 2021? I don't remember. I don't remember dates. I have memory issues. It was a few years ago. I remember uh, watching this go through. And what was the response that you got from the government? Well, we did two petitions. We did a physical petition and we did a digital petition. And we got far more signatures than what the government requires nationally. for a petition to be presented to the House. So in terms of social support, we got very good support. It was presented to the House by my MP here, Chandra Arya. The government responded. We were very ready for it to take a long time. I think for me personally, I wasn't ready for the government to say that's not our job. That's not our role. But that was a part of the response that we got from the government. So our movement now, we're not going to let go of the symbol, but we're not going to put all our eggs in the symbol basket, if you want to call it that. Right. Where we're now looking at ways to expand in terms of education and awareness and do more of that type of work. One of the reasons why I wanted to have you on is because there's been a lot more talk in the past uh, few years about disability political um, action and movement in Canada. So as we are speaking, um, it is June 21st, and we've now passed a law to create a disability benefit federally. So there's been a lot more attention that some Canadians with disabilities have been paying towards politics and what politics can be used for. What did you learn from your experience of going through all the work to put forward this petition and you gathered this big movement, you had a lot of support around it, and then you got an answer that wasn't exactly what you were looking for? Uh, What did that teach you about what the role and limits of politics are? I guess first, maybe we could have done a bit more research to know how symbols become universally accepted and used. I still don't have a full understanding of that. I think, too, is to understand that governments cannot move quickly. Mm -hmm. They move very slowly. I once had it described to me that the government is like this large freight tank, and it takes a lot to get it moving. And once it's moving, it takes a long time to get it to stop. Hmm. So I guess in terms of process, that's what I would say. In terms of outcomes... We cannot expect the government to control or guide or manage how my interpersonal interactions happen. They can't tell us what to think and how to behave. And so much of the experience of members of the hidden disability community is beyond the disabling conditions that we cope with. It's having to cope with people, A, not believing that you have a disability because they can't see or hear it, and 
be not understanding how to respond and C, not really recognizing that everyone knows somebody with a hidden disability, yet they don't frame it that way in their thinking. You know, disabling heart disease, arthritis, epilepsy, all mental illnesses, all cognitive issues. The list just goes on and on and on and on. Low vision. It's not always hidden, but it can be. Same with arthritis. I think people don't see that we have shared needs and common experiences. And the government can't influence that perception. Right. I remember um, the late David Onley when he was writing his review of the Accessibility for Ontarians with Disabilities Act in 2019. He talked about how, and this is paraphrasing his report, he talked about how there needs to be a change of the heart and legislation cannot change somebody's heart, right? Like a, a law or standards can't change somebody's attitude or the way that they treat somebody. Exactly. And we can't expect it or even hope for it. That's what we have to do ourselves. And it's interesting because so many times when I, when I talk to different people who are involved with different disability, like trying to get certain changes made, that's what they'll say. They're like, we want an attitude change. The biggest barriers I face are attitudinal barriers. And then often the solution that's proposed is, okay, let's pass a law or let's make a regulation or let's do something from the politics side of it, uh, which you've said, many people have said like that's not necessarily the right way to go about fixing somebody's attitudes. So what do you think? think that politics can offer those who are wanting to make positive change for disability? I think politics can offer policy, legislation, and standards that create a supportive environment. And then within that environment, hopefully individuals and organizations can embrace or adopt positive attitudes and helpful attitudes. So I think there is a very good role for what the government does and very good argument that with the right policies, with the right standards in place, you can build outside of government, you can build the right attitude. You can build the right responses and reactions. And speaking of standards, I know something that you've been focused on more lately since the petition happened is your involvement with commenting on proposed accessibility standards in Canada, the Accessibility Standards Canada. So first, can you just explain to people like what that is and how you got involved with it? From what I understand, I'm far from an expert, is that after passing the Accessible Canada Act, the government decided the process to use to achieve this, you know, Accessible Canada by 2040 was to create, I don't even know if they're a department, but working groups that were addressing and developing accessibility standards. And they chose a number of priority areas, transportation, employment. I have just put together, have not submitted it yet, a response to their draft standard, accessibility standards for public spaces. And how I got involved in this, I think what happened is because of the work with the movement, I became aware of a conference. And at that conference, it got mentioned about the development of accessibility standards. So I just went down that rabbit hole on Google (laughs) until I found the right office and the right contact people. And I just kept reaching out until I got on the right email lists. So now I get informed by email when there is a new draft standard out for public review. 
I have attended a couple focus groups. And when I'm able, and again, I have to stress that I'm not always able to do this stuff, but when I'm able, I monitor and then I choose my battles and I pick the ones that I think will have the most bang for my energy buck because I often live with very low energy. What I did notice with the uh, open spaces, one is I can't speak to standards about mobility or being blind or being deaf. But I did notice that most of their standards that were in this draft addressed mobility. Their signage draft standards talked about the need for sans-serif fonts. So the fonts that don't have the little feet or lines at the bottom of each letter, which I understand and support that people who are blind or have low vision need the cleaner, crisper look of those fonts. But I have visual processing problems. I have trouble understanding what I see. And letters and words without those little feet make it very difficult for me to read. So the feet like help you focus on like what the letter what? is and see where it's going? Yeah, the feet lead my eye from one letter to the next and from one word to the next. Lots of space between lines and lots of space between words work against me. Too little space works against me as well. I need those little feet. And yet the sans serifs fonts are taking over the web. I agree they're needed, but give us the choice or give us the control because it means that some websites I can't read. So that's why I'm doing this, is because by helping one group, you may actually be creating inaccessibility for another group. That concept of what you just mentioned, how what makes something accessible for one person makes it inaccessible for somebody else. Like people bring that up in terms of mobility disabilities, if somebody has a mobility aid or um, sometimes visual impairments or, or things like that. Often when we talk about it, we talk about it more in terms of it's the visible disabilities that don't always have the same accommodation needs. But what you're saying is hidden disabilities are just as much impacted, if not more, by these intersecting needs? Oh, absolutely. The hidden disability community is very diverse. It's larger than the detectable disability community, but there is less research and less advocacy about our needs and our experiences. And I think it goes back to the United Nations Conventions on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities. Mm -hmm. And in it, they've attempted to create this document, like wonderfully attempted to create this document to be all-inclusive. But some of the language in the CRPD specifies transportation, communication, and information, and tech and support for those issues. And the net effect has been that nations and provinces and regions, all in a trickle-down effect, now focus on mobility. Are you deaf? Are you blind? I'm not trying to say that they get the service they need. What I'm trying to say is that often the hidden disability needs go totally unaddressed. And what I'm concerned with and what keeps me involved with the development of these standards is that if you think of accessibility as a line and on the left you have society with pretty much full access to everything, on the far right you would have the hidden disability community and somewhere in the middle you would have the detectable disability community. 
what I believe the government's intention is, is to move both the detectable and hidden disability communities closer to general society on this line. But what I'm worried about is that the detectable disabilities needs, like that community's needs, will move closer to society, which is wonderful. Mm -hmm. The hidden disability community's needs will not. So then we'll create a greater gap between these two subgroups within the disability community. So I'm doing my best to keep the needs of the hidden disability community in their face. You mentioned earlier that one of your hidden disabilities is fatigue. Yes. And as anyone who's been involved in asking the government to do anything, but particularly something around disability and disability policy knows, it can be very tiresome. It can be all-consuming. I've talked to some individuals who, depending on what they're asking for, they'll say, like, this is actually my job. I spend most hours a week trying to get what I need in government services. And these are people who may not necessarily have fatigue. You have fatigue and you're doing something that can be really all-consuming and exhausting. So how do you keep doing it? I have knocked a whole pile of things off my to-do list. I had a friend who once was describing Cheerios on a stick, where if the Cheerios are your to-do list, some of us have a very small stick and some of us have a really long stick. I used to have a very long stick. Now I have a very, very short stick. Things like keeping my house neat. Gone. <laughs> Gone. Showering every day. Gone. You just learn what you don't have to do. And I don't have to do this advocacy but I decided very early into being injured that I was fortunate that I, A, had 44 years of life experience under my belt. And I had work experience within the healthcare system. I had studied a form of communication as well. I had a whole bunch of tools and skills that other people didn't. I also didn't allow my self-esteem or sense of self-worth to suffer because of my disability. I chose to be happy. Because of that, I feel like I'm helping people who maybe don't have either the personal or financial or whatever type of resources to do that where I can. Mm -hmm. So I do it. But I don't do it every day. I don't even do it every week. I can go months without doing anything. And then I choose when I feel like my life allows it and I choose. And it's gotten, in a sense, easier because when I was first involved on the Facebook page, I became more and more aware of other needs that I don't have that members of the hidden disability community face. So I was trying to keep track of them. Right. And I couldn't because I have memory issues. <laughs> So I started just collating them into categories. Then from there, it took over six years that I put a paper together where I talk about how we perceive disability and how our knowledge gaps are failing the hidden disability community. And I still refer to that document today to complete and help me write my responses to the draft standards because it hasn't changed that much. You know, even though I started this back in 2009 and it took six years to finish, we're quite a few years away from that. But really, the state of affairs hasn't changed that much. It's almost gotten easier where I'm my responses. I know, oh, I can talk about this. I can talk about that. And it's still very valid. 
I am definitely somebody who probably tries to cram too many Cheerios on my stick, or I pretend that my stick is longer than it is. I actually don't know how long my stick is, Laura. Yeah, well, um, and some people talk about it as spoons, right? Every right, day, yeah, you have every day spoons. you start with a certain number of spoons, and taking a shower uses up two spoons for some people, but could use up seven spoons for someone else. Right. It's much the same thought, but... Mm -hmm. The thing is, with Cheerios on a stick, if you put a new Cheerio on, you have to push an old Cheerio off. And That's I've true. got no more Cheerios to push off. And like you mentioned how you've been able to maintain like a good, healthy self-esteem and understanding of your worth and value, even when you went through this really massive life change. What were some of the changes you had to navigate after the injury? And I think first and that? foremost, it was loss. Most of my first level interests I couldn't participate in. I moved to mm. Ottawa because I wanted to cycle and kayak and hike and bike and do all sorts of things. And for 16 years, I couldn't bike. Mm. And now that I have a bike and I can ride it, I still can't do main trails because there's too much motion. I can't drive. I have trouble reading. I have trouble reading fiction in particular because there's too many characters and too much happens. Nonfiction is more linear. Mm -hmm. So I can actually read nonfiction better than fiction. I can't sing in a choir anymore. I can't play the piano. So that's what I mean. It was mostly loss. Yeah. I did not want my friends and my husband to have to compensate for my emotional reaction to that. And I remember laying in bed just telling myself, own what you own. Do your best. Don't make other people own it. Own what's yours. So that became a very, very good and enlightening lesson in acceptance. But it's not acceptance as in saying, okay, you know, sort of washing your hands of having any hope or any plans or any future. It's an acceptance within what you can do. To me, that's the biggest thing. And as I'm getting older, I'm noticing that some of my medical issues that aren't disability related are now cropping up and getting more extreme. And I'm in that again. I'm having to accept a new level of what I can and can't do. That's just part of life. And it happens to everybody, not just yeah. people with disabilities. But for me, I, I used to say it jokingly, but in some ways I was very serious that the impact of these injuries changed everything except the color of my eyes. And it did because it changed me physically, it changed me cognitively, it changed me emotionally and psychologically, and it changed me economically. You mentioned how, like, now that you're getting older, there's other things that crop up, and that, that happens to everybody as they age. Do you find yourself sometimes, like, giving advice or support to your friends who may be experiencing these losses for the first time? Um, hmm, that's a hard question because I lead such a small life. I don't interact a lot with my non-disabled friends. Um, that seems to be how life has panned out for me, that... I still feel very strong ties and friendship and love and compassion for my friends, but I don't do a lot with them because I can't do a lot. Hmm. I would have to say no, but I do find that my closest friendships now, in terms of the active friendships, they seem to be more people who go my speed. I can only think of two of my closest friends who don't have any disabilities or very limiting chronic conditions or illnesses or injuries. Um, and my husband used to, he had a spinal condition, but he had surgery that corrected it, but he gets it because he lived right. it. 
Yeah. So that's what I find is, is I seem to be most able to do things with people who get what I'm not able to do. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, that, yeah, that does make okay. sense. And they, and you mentioned like some close friends who don't necessarily have disabilities right now. Are these people who you knew from before the injury? Um, both. Yeah. Both. But I, I have made new friends since the injury. I lost a pile of friends after mm. the injury. Mm. I think that's probably something that people don't talk about as much as the relational loss that comes with. Oh, it's huge. The social loss is huge. So I know from talking to you elsewhere, just going back to the work that you've done and how you've very generously put yourself out there as in some ways for some people like the public face of hidden disabilities but despite that you don't like the word advocate it's not your preferred way to describe yourself and the work that you do describe your relationship with the word advocate and uh, where you are right now with that let me start off by saying that my hidden disability symbol is a self-advocacy tool and i think it's very appropriate that using the word in that context where I personally get uncomfortable with it is when other people call me an advocate. And there probably have been times in the past when I have called myself an advocate. But mm -hmm. the more I work on the political stuff, like the petition or the draft accessibility standards, the more I realize that I don't have advocacy skills. I do not know how to change policy and influence legislation. What I do know how to do is describe the needs of the hidden disability community and offer some solutions. So right now I'm in the throes of trying to decide, can I continue using the word advocate, which I'm not that comfortable with to describe myself, or what other word could I use? Communicator isn't quite right because I go a little bit beyond communication. And I'm actually playing with the word wayfinder because when you look up the principles of wayfinding, it's about having people easily get from one location to the next. And that's kind of what I want to do. I right. want to take government and society in general, I want to take their awareness and support of hidden disabilities from where we are now to a better place. And what does that better place look like for you? Like, how would you describe it? It's one where I don't have to defend the fact that I'm disabled just because I don't look it. It's one where people will turn radios down and take me to a private office to speak if there's too much noise and motion around me without me feeling like I have to fight for it. It's one where, to pick a recent example, a, a local grocery store just installed self check out. And of course, the volume on that voice that talks to you there is turned up and there's what, I don't know, eight machines all talking at the same time. The one lane they open is right beside all that noise and activity. And so the world would be better for me if they could open a lane farthest away from all the noise and activity. People are going to hate me for saying this, but I really enjoyed the COVID life. It was slower, it was calmer, it was quieter. There weren't any social expectations and people learned how to deliver and we learned how to do things without having to physically go from one place to the next. I can't drive because of my visual processing problems. Just getting to a doctor's appointment can be an issue for me at times. That slower, decentralized, quieter life was wonderful for me. I'm having trouble readjusting to the busier, noisier life again. 
And probably all of us could do with some more quiet in our lives, pandemic or no pandemic. Yeah, I mean, don't get me wrong. I would never wish COVID to happen again. But given that it happened, the COVID life for me ah, was a breath of fresh air. What are some things that you do to kind of get that breath of fresh air again? I need nature. So I told my husband this morning, tomorrow you're taking me in the kayak to the river. I focus on my dog. I know it sounds like a very simple thing, but for me, dogs are magic. They take me out of my world and keep me in the moment and they keep me thinking about the needs of another living creature. I write poetry and I paint. I have good friends. How has your disability impacted your poetry and your painting? It's much more emotional. In terms of the painting, it's gone much more abstract. I used to paint all these beautiful pastoral landscapes, and now there's a lot more angles and symbolism and things. I can feel the psychological impact of the injury and the disability coming out in my painting. Yeah, my poetry, I've always really enjoyed social commentary, and I think I build that more into my poetry. I have a couple here, Megan. This poem is called Exposed. If I could turn my body inside out, would you see my disability? Would my pain and fragility reveal themselves? Would you notice my silent distortions and understand why I am hurting? If I could turn my mind inside out, would you know that I know but cannot? Would you see my private frailties and understand why I am at my limit? If you could see my disabilities, hear my disabilities, what would they look like to you, sound like to you? A body twisted and contorted, off balance and wincing with every move? A mind cracked and misaligned, thinking and coping and trying? A voice tight and weary, straining to sing and hope? If I could expose my disabilities to you, what would you see? What would you hear? Just from listening to you talk today, I think what people, I hope what people hear from this conversation is somebody who does have hope. Um, oh, absolutely. Yeah. And is um, still moving I, forward. Actually, my next poem is about that. Yeah, I yeah. consciously chose to be happy. I figure you have three choices. You can choose to be miserable, you can choose to be happy, or if you can't achieve either, whichever your choice is, you can choose to get help to get there. And I chose happy. So this next poem is called Achieving Happy. Fumbling slowly inside life, I sit and notice, watch and play and understand I can change and grow, love and learn and believe. I can make things as right as possible whenever and wherever possible. I can choose forward, knowing what matters most, knowing my strength and my story. This power resonates, fills my passions, and creates my bright, lasting maybe. That's really beautiful. Thank you. 
Thanks for sharing those. Laura, you know, we always ask people who are on the show two final questions, and I want to get to that in a moment. But I know one of your current passions is outdoor spaces and outdoor accessibility. Uh, as people are listening to this, it is the middle of July. We are right in the thick of summertime, which for a lot of people means outdoor things. You and I both live in Ottawa. The city has a lot of that this time of year. What are some ways that those of us who are friends or family members of people with hidden disabilities, like what can we do to make our outdoor summer gatherings better for them? Keep them small. Keep them quieter. Don't make us travel long distances to attend something. Or if we have to, take us with you so that our energy isn't being used up in the driving or the transportation. Find a quiet place that's not at the central hub where the parking and the barbecue pits and the picnic tables and the kids at the beach are. Find a quieter place. I think if people keep quiet, less busy, less noisy, and decentralized in mind, those are probably the basic principles that will help. Yeah, thanks, Laura. So final two questions. You've touched on this a lot in different ways, but I was just wondering, like, what are some of the main ways where you find it harder to connect with people because of your experiences of disability? I think the main way is I have to lead a very small life. I have to lead a quiet life. That's not how people in this world expect to socialize. So I think that's the main reason. In addition, I don't drive. The two holes in my life are that I don't get enough nature and that when I want to do something, I can't just hop in the car and go. I can't ride the buses. They're too noisy. Mm. At afford Ubers and cabs. That's what prevents it. I also have sleep disorders. So anyone who calls me will hear a message saying, don't call me in the morning. Call back in the afternoon. Because <laughs> I'm not going to answer the phone in the morning. Because I have to reserve my mornings for catch-up in case I can't sleep at night. All of those things impede connecting with people. As a fellow non-driver in Ottawa, I can uh, relate to some of those. And I've noticed now, like if my parents come up to visit or something, you know, they'll ask, like, no, is there anywhere you want to go? Anything you want to make sure that we do while we're here? So that, you know, the places that you need to go to that are harder for you. And I actually can never think of how to answer the question, Laura, because I'm like, oh, I should just make this list. But I'm like, I'm just like, oh, I can't do it, whatever. It does not exist. It is in a black hole that I don't even know. So, and, and I would guess that that black hole is a spinning black hole, not a stationary black hole. Yeah, it's true. Yeah. But yeah, so I, I like, even listening to you talk, I'm like, yeah, I should probably take more time to consciously write down, like, these are actually the things I would like. And maybe it's possible to get them when somebody makes it available. Because I'm just like, oh, yeah, I can't get it. It's okay. I'll learn to live without this. That's a good yeah. phrase. Learning yeah. to live without. That's a very good phrase. That's what happens. Yeah, yeah. And it's, yeah. sometimes that's a really good thing, but then other times, no, like there are things that you want that you should be able to get. And it's just having people who are willing to help you do it. Exactly. Then for you, what does good connection look like? Because you've talked about having a small life, but you have a full life. Oh, yeah. Um, I have so, a very full life. For me, good connection is people are patient. There's no deadlines. <laughs> You know, and there's flexibility. Oh, today's not a good day. Oh, okay, that's fine. We'll do it another mm. day. The best connections are ones where they don't make life harder for me and they don't make life more expensive for me. So it means if you visit, help me clean up afterwards so I don't have to do it at the end. It means don't ask to go out to a restaurant that I can't afford simple little things like that. 
So it's, I guess, respecting my limitations. Right. And that's good advice for anybody. Yes. Yeah. Well, Laura, thank you so much for coming on the show. I've really appreciated it. And I'm really glad that other people get to meet you this way. Oh, thank you so much, Megan. It's such a pleasure to talk to you. Connecting Disability is a production of AMI-audio. It's written and produced by me, Megan Gilmore, with technical production by Nizreen Abdel-Majid and Jacob Shymansky. Andy Frank is the manager of AMI-audio. Special thanks today to our guest, Laura Bridges. I first spoke to Laura actually a few weeks before I moved here to Ottawa. And to be honest, uh, getting to meet her actually helped ease my transition to moving to the city. Uh, But then shortly after I moved here, I met someone else who has probably taught me the most about living with disability in Canada's capital. So I just want to give a shout out to my friend Christina Anderson, who literally is one of the first friends I made in the city of people I didn't already know. And yeah, uh, Christina, I'm so excited to rock some concerts with you and some movies in the future. Thanks for just being you. Thanks so much for listening, everyone. We'll connect next time.